Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn and I'm a WCT certified educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. With Tom Williams of this uh, Food and Wine Drink Tours, and we're going to talk about Georgia and the country and its wines. So first of all, Tom, can you introduce yourself and your enthusiasm for the wines of Georgia? Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, Matthew. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I got to Georgia first in 2016, and uh, I sort of was very fascinated by the fact that this wine culture had just been almost lost to the world, even though it's actually the oldest wine culture in the world currently, according to archaeological evidence, we've got 8,000 years of history here, of winemaking history, which we can talk a little bit about later. And um, back then, uh, seven and a half years ago or so, it was uh, it was still pretty pretty raw and rough and ready, and the tourism wasn't really established very well, and, and all of that's changed quite a lot over the last seven years. Uh, I've seen massive amounts of change since my first visit, and now I live here full time since 2019 running the food and wine tour company uh, so yeah I guess my passion started in 2016 and now I'm I'm drinking thousands of different wines over these years that I've been here trying lots and lots of different things and uh, and loving the culture I think there's a there's a lot to enjoy about Georgia and what took you to Georgia in 2016 well not Surprisingly, cheese and wine. Uh, well, actually, the cheese was the first step, and then we heard about the wine situation and went, wow, that's an amazing story, this 8,000-year history. Uh, so, yeah, some friends of us told us that they, they came here. Uh, we worked in the travel industry since 2013, my wife and I. We'd already been working in travel a little bit before that as well. And, um, yeah, so we went, okay, they, they've recommended it. Let's go try it. And then we got here and realized this is just uh, incredible culture that's ready for you know just starting to be ready for tourism and uh, it, it's somewhere really exciting to explore that's still very authentic and very untouched really even though that's that's starting to change but it, it's still very authentic i've never had the opportunity to visit georgia but i would love to but i have friends who have been and they immediately were captivated by the country so that sounds like a a common theme when people get to visit let's, let's talk about georgia's history so it's probably quite a lot to go over, but just some uh, broad kind of brushstrokes about Georgia's history, and especially in terms of wine. Yeah, I mean, this could easily be just the entire episode in itself. I could spend an hour talking about just 8,000 years of history. I mean, just just 8,000 years of history, barely any at all. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's on the crossroads of Asia and Europe. So there's been a lot of turbulent change, invasions, uh, lots of things over that time period, of course. Uh, but the wine history itself is very exciting because they have this uh, this archaeological site. They actually, I think these discoveries only happened about 10, uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, they would had the dig site in uh, about 20 miles south of Tbilisi uh, at a place called Gadtriligora. And they found some ancient clay pottery that was stained with wine. And it was clear from the carbon dating that it was from around 6000 B.C., and that this uh, exact pottery, uh, it, it was obvious that it was actually used for um, the production of wine. Uh, so it, it was more than just there might have been some wine that had accidentally ended up in a pot because someone had, had left some grapes there. But this was like dedicated production. Someone was purposefully making wine. Uh, so which means the actual winemaking tradition could have been going on even longer than that. Of course, this is just the oldest evidence they found so far. 
so that, it's pretty fascinating that they have this. Uh, it's, it's a clear thousand years older than any other evidence of winemaking that I'm aware of, um, Armenia being the, the second oldest that I'm aware of. Uh, there's a few in Iran that are also similar age to the Armenian one, I believe. Um, so yeah, it starts there, uh, very long time ago. Uh, and then of course, there's just thousands of years of history where not much happens. Uh, people just make wine as they do every season. Uh, and then eventually get into the more the more sort of uh, post uh, post yeah common era so sort of in the the 300s the 400s um, CE is around when Christianity was established here and then of course the monastic tradition of making wine as we have in most other countries uh, became a thing and so that those were places where the wine was being made as well as well as in homes as well of course. Uh, and those traditions still continue today. There are monasteries, lots of monasteries that make their own wines. Uh, and most homes make their own wines if they live in the countryside as well. They've all got their own wine production at home, still making it in the traditional way. This is one of the things that I think is most fascinating about Georgia is that this Quevery method from 8,000 years ago, which is the, the clay pots uh, that they found the stains of wine on, people still have these in their homes. Most people still have them in their country homes and um, they still make wine in that same way. They, just, they put the grapes in, they crush them a little bit, they leave the skins in, they let them macerate for, for often up to six months in, in the east of Georgia, but less in other parts of Georgia. And uh, you come out with these incredibly authentic, unique, historical wines, uh, and it's, it's still going on everywhere. So yeah, that's, that's the first part of the history. As I said, this could go on for a long time because then we move into uh, into sort of uh, the, the next part with Rus Russian Empire and, uh, and all those sorts of things, which we can talk about as well if you want. Uh, to, totally up to you. Well, I think that's a good overview of the, the wine or the development or the tradition of uh, winemaking in Georgia. And that is one of the things that is fascinating about the country is that tradition and, and that is an history. And that is what appeals to a lot of wine lovers who discovered Georgian wine, that you're talking about centuries and centuries of history, which still feels very current. Um, it's not just this is the past, it's also it's the present as well. So there's lots of, to discuss. So let's talk, talk about the um, styles of wine and how they are influenced by tradition and um, what makes Georgian wine unique. Yeah, well, as I said, this, this unbroken chain of, of Crevery wine production, which obviously it changed in Europe, uh, you know, using clay pots to make wine was something that was happening in other parts of Europe, uh, in Greece around 3000 BC and then onwards from there. Uh, but of course, that all changed into modern production where uh, people are using steel tanks and they're using carbonic production even now, like modern modern styles that are completely different. Whereas this is uh, this is still very much 100% the method that uh, the majority of local families and smaller wineries are are still using. Uh, whereas a lot of large factories are starting to use uh, modern production a lot more. So there's, uh, if they're doing big, big batches and bulk production of millions of bottles of wine, then those sorts of places are not just using Quevery. But most of them still do have uh, that sort of production as well. Uh, so the, we do have all of these different styles of wine, but of course the Quevery wine is the most important one. Uh, and uh, as I said, for, for Georgians, this is a, an intimate part of the culture. Uh, the production style is going to be somewhat reminiscent of, uh, of red wine production, but they also do the same production style with white wine. So, of course, these extended maceration periods with the skins. Uh, it, what is a typical, um, a typical way that they would make wine in Karketi, which is the biggest wine region, uh, which is in the far east of the country, and they make about 73% of all production is in that one 
area because it's a very big valley and that's their main production area um you would obviously after harvest uh they do very simple crushing they don't just get rid of all the skins they, they don't just use the juice to make the white wines the all the skins go in as you'd expect with any sort of amber orange wine production uh and that will move forward into this yeah the longer maceration periods which I, I don't think that's common in other parts of the world to have sort of six six or more months with the skin contact still in the quivery uh, important uh, part with the quivery method as well is that um, the, the bottom of the clay pots is a, a sort of teardrop shape. So this means that the skins sort of fall into this bottom area and it reduces the, uh, the surface area a little bit. So everything sort of sits right at the bottom. And so that also affects uh, some of the reasons why they can leave the, the skins in for such a long period of time. Uh, they leave, once the fermentation is completed in the, in the quiveries, they, um, they seal them up. Uh, and then they let them age on skins for that sort of six months or so. Uh, and then in the springtime, they will open them. And uh, most wine or a lot of wine for families is consumed straight away. That uh, it's very common to just drink the young wines. You drink them all year. And then when you get to harvest season the next year and you start running out of wine, you, the quiveries get emptied, store the remaining wine somewhere else. And and then uh, you, you start all over again. <laughs> you just you drink what you make. It's still a, a very organic process in that way. Uh, the way you described them, it almost sounds like an ancient prototype of the concrete egg in terms of the shape and the texture and just how it allows the wine to develop. Yeah, it's the, it's the original one. So, yeah, they can hold claim to that. And also they can be buried underground as well. Is that still a common practice? They are uh, in the east of Georgia, very much so. That is the normal way to do it. Uh, so the, the neck of the quivery where the opening is, is, of course, above the ground. And then the rest of the body of the quivery is underground. Uh, and this helps stabilize temperatures throughout the winter season where the, the aging is, is completing. Uh, and of course, during fermentation, this helps stabilize the temperature a bit as well. So yeah, that's uh, yeah makes a big difference. Uh, there's even some unusual uh, modern techniques now where they are, uh, they're actually putting sort of cold water pipes uh, around the quivery so they can actually control the temperature uh, in a little bit more of a modern way. So that's interesting as well. A few people doing that, not that many. Uh, and then there are regions of Georgia which get very cold in the winter where, um, so parts of Northwest Georgia, like Ratcher is one region we could talk about, uh, where they make naturally semi-sweet wines because it actually gets so cold that the fermentation stops. Uh, and so sort of mid-November, they've sort of haven't even finished fermenting completely. And, um, and then, yeah, it gets stopped by the cold temperatures. Uh, and because it's completely natural, you never know how sweet the wine's going to be. Maybe one year it will stop completely. Uh, one, one year it won't stop and it will uh, finish and it will go to a fully dry wine. Uh, and they just don't know. They just follow the natural method entirely. And it's a pretty exciting place for, for that. And um, so you're kind of mentioning the impact of the climate on the wines and the wine making. Uh, can you describe the climate of Georgia? Uh, there's a lot of climates. So it's, uh, it's a very diverse country. It's a very diverse um, yeah, set of areas where they're making wine. Uh, across in Karketi, as I mentioned, is sort of the largest wine producing region. They have a sort of moderate uh, climate, continental climate, uh, but they have the benefit of the Caucasus mountain range is running all along the north of that valley. Uh, and so they get the nice sort of cool air that comes down into the valley in the evenings off the top of those mountains, which is sort of four and a half to 5,000 meters high mountains. So it's uh, not only is it great for the wine to have that sort of climate, uh, but of course, it's also beautiful for tourists who are coming here. Uh, these mountains, this panoramic view all the way along the valley uh, for almost 200 kilometers of just, uh, yeah, just mountains in every direction. 
uh, so well to the north so like 180 degrees of mountains it's quite quite amazing valley to be in uh, so yeah that's one climate area and then we have cooler wines uh, in the area of Kartli, which is just north of Tbilisi the capital um, Shida Kartli is the north part of that which has a different climate from the southern part uh, yeah bit of a cooler climate they also have slopes leading up towards the Caucasus so they're they're making lighter sort of white wines there they're quite famous for that they also make sparkling wines in that region it's the only region of Georgia that has a, an appellation designated for sparkling wines uh, we've got 29 appellations here only one of them is sparkling wines and that's in Kartli uh, and then we move across into the western part of the country because pretty much the whole country is a wine region apart from the high mountain areas uh, so just any area you're going outside of the mountains is is going to be making wine and all in different styles with with different grapes uh, when you move west to Imereti is the the second largest wine producing region uh, that is heading towards the Black Sea. It's over another mountain range on the Black Sea side of the country, which means uh, they have sort of these more subtropical temperatures leading up into the, the sort of uh, mountain climate at the extremes uh, as you get to the, the sort of northern and uh, eastern edges of, of Imereti. So that makes for another fascinating uh, sort of different styles of wines. They make much lighter wines over there, much higher acid wines as well. But as you move south towards uh, south and east towards the Black Sea, and that's where it gets warmer and warmer and more humid. And then the wines change again as you get further towards the sea. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very diverse. And that's not even all of the regions. <laughs> there will be more to talk about depending on how much time we have. Two related questions. So you've just talked about lots of different regions. How is the Georgian wine industry kind of organized? And you've talked about appellations. You know, what is the structure in defining those organizations, those appellations? And also, does it make it difficult to talk about Georgian wine if there are so many different styles and um, of wine? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for anyone who hasn't been familiar, and it's taken me many years, uh, I'm still learning. I'm still discovering grapes that I haven't tasted. So I, I've got one. I've got a wine tasting tomorrow. We're tasting uh, Okruula, which is a grape that I only know two winemakers in the whole of Karketi that make this wine. I'm getting to taste one tomorrow. Um, there's over 525 uh, grapes. They keep finding new grapes uh, that are endemic to Georgia, as well as some international varieties like uh, Merlot, Montepulciano, Gewürztraminer, um, Dromina, and others. Uh, there's quite a few here, but um, mostly they're using Georgian grapes for, for production, of course. Um, so, yes, it, it is quite uh, difficult to understand all of them, but for most people who are starting here, um, it quite amazingly, even with this huge diversity of grapes, there's really only two grapes that make up about 90% of the entire production of the country, which is Saparavi and Katsateli. And these are both from Karketi. So if you're going to just start with Georgian wine, the, the huge mass of everything that you'll find, especially internationally, is going to be those two grapes. Those two grapes are, are pretty easy to, to start learning about, even though they are also very versatile. You've got everything from sweet wines to dry wines. You've got sort of lighter bodied versions uh, to, to very, very heavy, heavy versions of them. It's uh, incredibly versatile grape. So if you're blind tasting a Cazzatelli, uh, you can often be fooled into thinking it's something completely different because it can go from anywhere as a light white wine made without skin contact where you've got sort of green, green apple and maybe uh, sort of light citrus flavors all the way through to a very heavy sort of caramel dark brown orange wine uh, where you're tasting it almost tastes like a sherry but it's a dry wine so it got it's like distinct taste of sherry um, bold sort of orange peel and dried fruits 
uh, it, it's an incredibly diverse grape, which is why um, they ended up making this like the main grape, which is, that's a whole nother story. If we want to talk about why the, these grapes exist, uh, the Soviet Union is, the, is where we, we would get onto. So depending on where you want to go with it, but yeah. I don't, I don't know if I fully answered your question there. I think I went on a bit of a tangent, but please circle back if I missed something important. The other question is kind of how the Georgian wine industry is structured. Um, and you did kind of just mention the Soviet Union there, and maybe you can also draw on that history and how it's shaped Georgia for better or for worse. Yeah, I mean, most of the locals here think for worse, of course. That's, uh, that's the general position. Two parts of Georgia are still occupied by Russia to two states. So there's a, there's a lot of anti-Russian sentiment among the locals, of course. Obviously, most of Europe had the, the phylloxera problem back in the 19th century, uh, and that spread through Georgia as well. Uh, a lot of the, the plantings here were destroyed and, and were having to be replanted at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. At that point, Georgia was occupied by the Russian Empire. So that was pre-Soviet, of course. Uh, and then once uh, once that ended in 1918, Georgia only managed to get three years of independence until in 1921, they were reoccupied by uh, by the Soviets. Uh, and so uh, Joseph Stalin is actually from Georgia. Uh, not everyone knows that, but yeah, there's a, there's a town in uh, near Tbilisi, about an hour from Tbilisi. That's where he grew up. There's a museum there. Um, but uh, the the general policy of, of the Soviet Union was bulk. They wanted the maximum amount of production, the highest yields. They didn't care about quality at all. Uh, so their plan at that point was, well, a lot of plantations, uh, a lot of vines had already been destroyed due to phylloxera. So when they were making a decision on how to strategically replant everything, because not everything would be replanted in that sort of 25 year period, um, they said, well, we're going to replant basically just a, a few of the most important grapes for whichever region, whichever is going to produce the most wine. And uh, it actually became illegal to grow grapes that were not on the list. Uh, the, the exact list, uh, I think it's about eight grapes. I can't remember all of them offhand, but uh, Cazzatelli, the main white grape, was uh, the most important one. Saparavi is the main red grape, and that's the second one. And, and there's a few others from other parts of the country as well. That, that they can't grow Saparavi and Cazzatelli easily in the west of Georgia, so of course they chose a West Georgian grape. Uh, one of the other sad things that happened was they decided just not to replant grapes in West Georgia because they figured East Georgia is better for high yields uh, and they started tea plantations instead. So it's a pretty sad situation that they basically, uh, they, they sort of monocultured most of the country uh, and removed a lot of the original diversity that was here with so many endemic grapes that were just not being used. Uh, and a lot of the grapes that we're now seeing, the rare grapes that are being used in wines, uh, some are being exported, some are just mainly local. Uh, it's because they've been rediscovered or because there were uh, there were winemakers who actually were, were continuing to grow them in secret or just because they were they were wild and they just hadn't been destroyed. Uh, and so they, they just happened to be there. So there's some very interesting and unusual grapes still made in very small quantities. And the vast majority of stuff getting exported uh, is just yeah, Saparavi and Cazzatelli. Quite a lot to the Russian market as well. It's over 50 percent or around 50 percent. Uh, of all wine being exported is going to Russia directly, and that's normally the cheapest, uh, worst quality wine, and uh, and some red sweet wines are their their favourites, and that's what they're they're importing a lot of over to Russia. China is an important market for Georgia as well. China is second or third after Russia, but it's nowhere near as much. I mean, we're talking about like ten percent rather than almost fifty percent with Russia. I think it's it's somewhere around that, and then. 
yeah, the the rest of it, there's everywhere else around the world, it sort of makes up the last sort of 40%-ish, you know, 40-something percent of, of all export. So although we're, we quite a lot go into the UK, more than the US, according to the official statistics, it's mostly still Russia, unfortunately, and a lot of the, a lot of the Georgians don't really want that to be the case. But uh, we have to remember that sort of the high quality artisan wines are being made in quite small quantities. And this, these statistics are made up of what is essentially bulk wine being sold at, you know, $2 a litre or less, you know, a dollar a litre or something. It's, it's uh, yeah, that's being sold at a very low price uh, for bulk. And then the good quality wines are more likely to be uh, imported by, by uh, Western Europe and uh, and US a little bit as well. Still not that much going to the US though. Adding to the variety of uh, Georgian wine and the different styles, different markets, different consumption. Let's talk about those great varieties which you've touched upon. Uh, so you've got the most important varieties and let's focus on those and why they're so important and what kind of wines they make. Uh, so let's talk about Saparavi. As I said, this is the, the highest export, although it's actually the second highest production grape. Catsitalia has produced more. Uh, Saparavi is a very exciting grape because it's a, a Tanturier grape. So it has both uh, the red skin and the red juice inside, the red flesh inside. It makes some incredibly dark, uh, pretty much opaque wines. I mean, people here call them black wines uh, because they really are. You just cannot see through them at all. They're entirely opaque. But as I mentioned before, it's a very versatile uh, grape. So we're making everything from those semi-sweet and sweet wines that are getting exported to Russia and Eastern Europe uh, through to some pretty exciting dry wines. Uh, now, I mentioned there were 29 appellations currently registered here. Uh, there's, it's happening. They're, they're bringing new ones all the time. I think there were three new ones registered last year. Well, most of these in Karketi, it's about 15 or 16 in Karketi. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, and about half of those are for Saparavi. So you have some very famous wines that are exported, like Kinsmaruli and Kranchkara, which are probably the two most famous ones. Uh, so Kinsmaruli is made from Saparavi. Kranchkara is made from um, two different grapes, Alexandruli and Mujuratuli. Uh, it's from West Georgia. But these are two semi-sweet wines that are very popular with the Russian market. So that's that's why there's like a lot of them being made. Uh, Kinsmaruli has a sort of a typical classic bold, um, semi-sweet flavor with black currant and, and deep black cherry and those sorts of tastes. Uh, and then you can go through to some very other interesting appellations that are made uh, with wine from Saparavi, like Hashmi. Hashmi is uh, another area in Karketi. Uh, this has like a southeast facing slope and it also makes quite bold wines. They make the wines there in the Quevery. They make them in the traditional style of Georgia and they make those wines dry and those also come out with a, a very sort of powerful, aggressive, quite high tannin, relatively high acid uh, taste with uh, blackberry and some smoke and, and, and cherry as well. Uh, so those are two really uh, completely different areas. The, the One of them is in one valley, uh, the, the South Valley called the Yuri Valley of Karketi, and the other is in the Alazani Valley uh, to the north, which is the bigger valley that produces more wine. Uh, they're both sort of south facing slopes and uh, south to southeast facing slopes but they make completely different styles of wine one of them is just on the foothills of the caucasus mountains the uh, kinsmaruli one and then Khashmi is basically in a completely different valley um just uh, yeah over another mountain range and then down so yeah definitely two different completely different types of wine made from exactly the same grape from saparavi one more that i would say is probably the the most interesting that i really like uh mukwazani this is a, a different part of the Alazani Valley. This is the sort of 
at sort of the sort of east facing slope opposite the Caucasus Mountains rather than underneath the Caucasus Mountains. This side of the Alazani Valley is known for much more powerful wines, uh, whereas the side where Kinsmaruli is uh, is typically known for softer wines. Uh, so that's that's sort of one of the main reasons. If you look anywhere along that strip, and we'll talk about some of the white wines grown there as well in a second, that that is where you are finding the classic Carcetian high tannin, bold, dark, powerful wines. Even though, because Saparavi is such a strong grape, uh, mostly it is making strong and powerful wines when we talk about the whites, so we can talk about some of the difference. Uh, so Mukazani is also famous because traditionally it would be oak aged as well, which is uh, one of the, the few wines in Georgia that specifically uh, has been known to be oak aged. They've recently got rid of that uh, classification, sadly. You don't have to oak age it now, it's optional, which is very frustrating because I thought it was great that that was part of the style. Uh, so you have to look out to make sure if it says Mukazani on the bottle, that if it's oak aged or not, you'll have to check the back of the bottle and find out. Um, but I, I find the Saparavi works very nicely with oak aging because it is such a powerful grape to have it softened in that, in that way with extended aging, I think it works great. So some other wines from that area, as I said, the, that side of the valley, the, the sort of the, the Gombori side is the other mountain pass that's opposite, uh, the other mountain range that's opposite the Caucasus. Through here, we have some very interesting uh, amber wines uh, with the Cazzatelli, as we said, it's like the most famous, uh, most famous white grape here that's used to make amber wines. My, my personal favorites, uh, probably not something you'll find easily outside of Georgia, but uh, hopefully more so. It's called Serapi, which is made mainly from Cazzatelli. Sometimes it can be blended with uh, Mutsvani, which is another grape we haven't talked about, but we can do a bit later. Uh, this, this makes this sort of um, almost characteristically orange peel tones that you get with this wine. It's, it doesn't have to be super, super bold. It can be a little bit more um, refined and laid back. Uh, but it, it, yeah, brings this orange peel flavor, maybe some red apple, uh, and maybe occasionally something a little more towards the caramel spectrum, depending on how the winemakers made it. This, for me, typifies that, that sort of, uh, that bank of the river, which is the, the right bank of the river along the Gombori Mountains. It's, it's just this gloriously rich uh, and exciting uh, amber wine, which I, I don't think I've really tasted anything quite like it. Um, outside of Georgia. It, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous wine. But then you also move to another very famous area uh, called Sinandali, which is, they make white wines rather than amber wines. And they use Cazzatelli as well, but they make this very light and fresh and bright white wine with this. Also, it can be blended with Mutsvani. That's, that has sort of notes of pear and, and green apple uh, very fright, uh, light and fresh and bright sort of summer wine that can be nicely chilled. So that's the sort of the level of versatility between, we're, we're talking about a, a distance apart of about 60 kilometers here, about 40 miles or so uh, between this one, this one area that's making these incredibly bold uh, amber wines and then another area that's making these very light European style wines from exactly the same grapes. So it, it really is quite a, a huge level of diversity. And then there's everything in between from those two styles, everything from those, those powerful amber wines all the way back to the, the very light European style white wines made from the Cazzatelli grapes. You mentioned um, in the seven years you've been there, there's been lots of change. You've also mentioned all the rich history of Georgia. Well, where is Georgia now in terms of its wine culture, wine production, wine audience, and what changes have you seen? 
The absolute biggest change that I've seen is just the speed at which artisan and natural wines and higher quality wines have actually been established here compared to 2016. So there's a, there's a really good story to this in general. Um, back in 2006, although Russia is still a massive uh, importer of Georgian wines and the most important one for them now, uh, back in 2006, there was an embargo which lasted until 2013, where Russia refused to import any wines from Georgia at all. So some uh, political disagreement there, which would probably be uh, some, a long story to go into. But ultimately, because of this, winemakers here were like, we, we cannot rely on the Russian market to buy all our wines. It's simply not realistic to put all of our eggs in that one basket, because back in 2006, they were pretty much by far the, the largest importer, you know, it was, it was absolutely critical to the Georgian market to have um, Russia importing wines. So at this point, a lot of winemakers realized that if they were going to actually succeed uh, in a market that was unstable like this, and of course, Georgians don't really uh, have, a, they're not big fans of Russia right now, so, or, or for quite a long time, for a couple of hundred years. So uh, it, it made sense for them to go, let's try a new strategy. And that's what happened from 2006 onwards. The new strategy was to start focusing on wines that uh, Western Europe, Japan and other countries were likely to be more interested in purchasing, which involves making higher quality wines because Russia was happy to buy all these cheap wines, bulk wines. But uh, the American market and English market and other countries wanted to buy high quality artisan wines. So that's the direction it went in. Uh, and even in 2016, that sort of process had not really become entirely evident that it had, had reached any sort of fruition. Uh, it was still very much when I was going around to wineries in 2016, I was drinking some very, very strange homemade wines with wine faults, uh, vinegary things that I did not enjoy at all. And the difference between that and even 2018 when I next came back and then 2019 when I moved here permanently uh, has just been the, the quantity and quality of artisan winemakers and, and professional quality wines where these winemakers have actually gone to university to study wine rather than just making it the way their grandfather told them how to do it. Uh, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with either of those options, because there are some fantastic home wines that are made purely by feeling and, and just uh, gut feeling entirely. Uh, but I, I've noticed the difference in the refinement in the quality of wines and just the sheer amount of small producers that are making excellent wines now. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I get to taste so many wines here from so many producers, and I'm always finding new producers that uh, just making fascinating wines. So I think that that's been the evolution and I've seen it very clearly in the last seven years since I've been here uh, that it, now I can go out to wineries and, and the quality is sort of there. Whereas seven years ago, I, it was always very hit and miss. That sounds like an exciting place to be right now in terms of uh, wine development. What about wine culture, restaurant culture? How do Georgians drink wine and appreciate wine? They drink wine in huge quantities. <laughs> Let's start with that. I mean, it's the most popular beverage in the country by a long way. Uh, I can't remember the exact stats, but like a very, very long way. There's a huge majority of wine is, is the thing. One of the main reasons for this, of course, is historically it has been the drink of choice. Uh, the, the area, the whole country is so good for growing grapes that it just made sense uh, in terms of nature to, to be making this beverage as well. Uh, but also it is woven very closely into the culture in general. So they have this event here called the Supra, which is the Georgian feast. And the history of this has developed over, well, at least the, it sort of changed quite a lot during the Russian Empire, but uh, the historians believe it was still a thing before that. During the Russian Empire period, though, 
uh, it became sort of this secret feast where people could celebrate Georgian culture in private because their culture was being suppressed by the, the occupiers who were here. They weren't allowed to say certain things or, or feel certain things in public. So they had this uh, amazing way of maintaining their traditions through, um, through toasts, through very long toasts. Some of these toasts can be like three or four or five minutes long. And they'll weave an entire story around a theme such as peace or love or family or children. Uh, and they, they will make these incredible stories that by the end of it, you know, you're either crying or you're laughing or, or a bit of both throughout them. Uh, and every one of these toasts, of course, has to be accompanied by wine. And the tradition is that uh, you would drink the entire cup of wine after every single toast. Uh, of which there can be dozens of toasts over many, many hours. These supras can last for 10 or more hours if you are doing the real thing. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, that can end up being a lot of wine if you actually follow the tradition, which I, I'm, in, I'm incapable of doing, but I've tried uh, a little bit. Uh, but it's well known for Georgian men to boast about their ability to drink between three and nine liters of wine at one supra per person. <laughs> so... That's, uh, that's quite, quite intense, definitely outside of my possible range. But uh, beyond those traditions, uh, the concept of drinking these higher quality artisan wines rather than just drinking a large quantity of wine has definitely become more popular. And now in, in places like Tbilisi as the capital and some of the other larger cities, you actually do find a lot of wine bars uh, and a lot of places that are representing this very diverse and, and huge range of different artisan wines. Uh, pretty reasonable prices as well. So you can sit down in a, in a wine bar and have a, a very, very good expertly made bottle of artisan wine from a small producer who's making maybe 10,000 bottles a year. Uh, and you'll be paying sort of about 15 US dollars or equivalent for, for a good a good bottle and um, yeah, less than $10 for an, an average bottle. So it's, yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic. It's very economical as well as, as very high quality. Or, or you can pay a lot more if you want. There are some much more expensive wines as well, of course. And what about food and restaurants? Um, here in California, there's a small number of Georgian restaurants which really do um, specialize in matching food and wine and really representing Georgian culture. Um, how does that work in Georgia itself? Or do you know of examples abroad that you could mention? The restaurant scene in the cities is is really quite good. When you go out to the countryside, there are a few sort of very basic restaurants in most places. Maybe some of the larger settlements in the more touristy areas have better restaurants. But really, the pretty much the quintessential thing you need to do if you're a food and wine fanatic and you're coming here uh, is to go and dine with a winemaker at their home. And this is actually very, very not straightforward as such, but I mean, there are lots of options to do this. So most of the small winemakers and artisan wineries, they will host uh, tourists in small groups of sort of like five to 20 people. Uh, and you can go out and, and actually dine with them. So their family will make all of the food for you. They'll cook all the traditional dishes. You'll have a sort of a variety of maybe the four or five types of wine that that winemaker makes. They will sit with you at the dinner and they will make toasts as we were discussing the, the supra style. They will make these toasts to you and welcome you as foreigners to their home and and talk about Georgia and, and all of these other things. They don't always speak English. Uh, quite a lot of them don't speak English. Uh, normally, we, we send people out with a with a tour guide, of course, who translates for these sorts of activities. Um, for me, that's that's basically Georgia Georgia's most important thing to, to come to Georgia and not go and actually dine with a winemaker and, and experience the supra 
would be a, a great shame if you're just going to a restaurant or a few restaurants, you're, you're really missing out on the, the full cultural experience. Uh, but that said, of course, you do have to sort of book something. You can't just turn up on someone's doorstep and, and hope for the best that they have food for you. That doesn't work. Uh, you need to book something in advance to do those sorts of experiences. When it comes to restaurants, yes, there's, there's lots of restaurants in Tbilisi and, and other cities where you can get artisan wines on the menu. Someone in the restaurant may be able to help you pair that wine with some of the food that you're going to get, some of the traditional dishes. Uh, but that's still a developing art. And I, I don't, wine pairing still hasn't really made it here. We're, we're sort of pioneering some stuff here, there ourselves, uh, trying to, to work with winemakers to help them pair wines. Uh, but I think it will be, it'll be a thing in the next few years. Uh, but yeah, if you're eating in the restaurants or, or anywhere, really, there's a couple of traditional dishes. Kinkali, which is the dumplings, massive dumplings, uh, like the size of a, a small child's fist. They're, they're not the little tiny dumplings that you, you might get, not like little raviolis or something. These things are huge. Uh, and uh, they're stuffed with meats, there's juicy meat inside, and you bite into them, and then you have to slurp all of this soupy, juicy meat out of them, because otherwise it's going to go all over the table. And uh, that's they're a lot of fun to explore, uh, lots of different versions of those. And uh, khachapuri is uh, the cheese stuffed bread, which is probably also one of the, the other iconic sort of national dishes of Georgia. They actually make many different varieties of this food, uh, this cheese stuffed bread. So when you look at the Internet, you'll probably see this one type which looks a bit like a boat shape and it has an egg in the middle. I think a lot of people who've done any research on food for Georgia have probably seen that one because it's the, the most photogenic one. Uh, but actually, that is from a small region called Ajara in West Georgia. Uh, it has become iconic, of course. Uh, but if you go to someone's family home in the east of the country rather than in the west of the country and you're expecting to get to eat that, you're probably going to be a bit disappointed because you'll have the local kachapuri there. So there's at least 10 varieties of kachapuri, uh, all slightly different, all with slightly different ingredients. And, but definitely cheese, cheese and bread are like the two main things work with that. So, yeah, the, there's a good hearty hearty filling dishes that you need to try if you come here let's talk a little bit about the tourism which you've mentioned um, and it's growing um, who's visiting and i think you've given some reasons why to visit maybe just kind of elaborating what you do and in inviting uh, people to the country yeah sure so of course uh, it's been a turbulent time for the tourism industry since covid uh, back in 2019 things were, were getting very busy here that's when we started the company and then a few months after that, COVID happened and they closed the border for six months uh, longer for some countries. Uh, so <laughs> it was a, an interesting time to start a tour company. We worked a lot with the domestic market then. Uh, but yeah, in general, uh, the tourism before was, was starting to be a lot more sort of Americans, Western Europeans. But I think due to the, the war in Russia that's still ongoing, of course, with Ukraine, it has put a few people off from coming here. But uh, fortunately, we sort of are seeming to bounce back. I think people have realized that we're, we're well over a thousand miles away from the conflict. There's not really any imminent danger here. There hasn't been any imminent danger. I've been here the whole time. It's, it's genuinely been completely safe. Uh, the, the only major change was a lot more Russians uh, emigrated here. Quite a lot of them still live here. Uh, so there's a lot more Russian population in the expat community than there used to be. But in terms of tourism, also quite a lot of Russians because they, they can't go everywhere anymore. So they, they can only go to certain countries. Georgia is still um, actively um, happy for them to visit here. Uh, they, they need the money. The economy needs the money after two years of COVID. So it totally makes sense. Uh, but for our tour company, we only do tours in English and we get guests from all over the world. Uh, anyone who speaks English, including countries that are not first language English, like Germany, Spain, France, we get quite a lot of people from there. Uh, surprisingly, a large amount of people from Australia, because Australians get everywhere. 
and, and, and England and the USA as well. But other markets, Hong Kong, China, yeah, a little bit huge mix, really. I think it's quite a diverse tourism picture at the moment uh, with where people are choosing to travel. And, and Georgia is starting to get on the radar again. Uh, and uh, as it was doing so well in 2019 and we had such a such a bump down during all of those troubles and a lot of flights didn't reopen. But that's starting to happen. A lot more direct flights from Europe, uh, making it a lot easier to travel here. Touched on quite a few different aspects of Georgia and definitely the fact that there are lots of different regions producing uh, different styles of wine, lots of different grape varieties. Sorry we can't talk about all 525 of them. A general perception of Georgian wine is that really historic tradition of the Clary and of amber wine as well, which has influenced producers around the world in terms of wine making. And do you think that's something that Georgia should base itself on and saying, look at this history and tradition, these distinct styles of wine, or should it market itself as being a bit more modern and contemporary? Or how does it kind of weave those two aspects together? I mean, currently, given that this winemaking tradition is the oldest in the world, it, it would seem like a huge missed opportunity not to focus on that style. Uh, and a lot of natural wines here, uh, a lot of people are, a lot of winemakers are very passionate about talking about how natural their wines are. Uh, so if you're looking for some sort of more unusual natural wines or, or even some very nice refined natural wines that haven't got a little cloudy and funky, there's a, there's a range all the way from the very, very high quality ones where they've managed to sort their hygiene issues out and get everything perfect uh, all the way through to sort of the natural funky end of the scale that you're like, I'm not sure if this is wine anymore. So we've got a little bit of everything. It is the most important part of Georgian culture. Locals drink uh, at these supras, at these feasts, they drink this amber Cazzatelli wine. That is the wine of the supra. Obviously, if you live in a different part of the country, you drink your own local variety of the wine. But uh, pretty much the whole country does skin contact wines if you're making wines at home. It's really only factories or a few more professional winemakers that are experimenting with new styles, that are doing anything along the lines of using cultural yeasts or uh, more steel tank production. I mean, some of them do have steel tank production at home, but mostly they'll have like some quaveries and some steel tanks rather than just being 100% steel tank. It's only a few winemakers I know doing small production that are doing that. The, yeah, the vast majority of the, the steel tank and modern production is all in these huge wine factories which are making millions of bottles. I, the total production here is uh, 2021, I think was the most recent stats. Uh, 234 million bottles were exported. Sorry, no, that's total production, not export. So less, less were exported. 234 million bottles are recorded as being produced, uh, but those production stats won't necessarily include home production where people are genuinely just not, they're not selling any of the wine, they're drinking it all themselves and small producers might not even be on those stats either. Uh, the, the vast majority of all that wine is coming out of the, the big wine factories. And then we have this almost underbelly, but but not really, a very open and public underbelly of, of amazing home producers. Uh, and that's sort of the most fascinating part of Georgia. As a tourist and as someone who's buying wines, uh, I think, because once it becomes mass produced, I mean, my opinion at least is that often it can become a bit too generic. I feel like if, you, if you're buying a bottle of wine in the US for $10, $12 that came from Georgia, it means it came from a factory and they sold it to the, the US for $2 at cost or less. Uh, and you're getting something that's a, a very low quality wine. And, and it's sort of unfortunate that that's the first point that many, uh, many people get introduced to Georgian wine and go, oh, well, hmm, don't know about this. Please spend at least $30 on a bottle and try and get something that's made uh, in a, a more sort of authentic um, artisan way. And then, then you'll really get to start exploring Georgian wine.
as opposed to supermarket wine. And it's interesting that you're talking so much about home production integrated with the skin contact tradition, because skin contact will help uh, preserve the stability of the wine, protect it from oxidation. And you've talked about how, you know, these home wines are traditionally drunk very young. So the skins give them that ability to be stable, be able to be drunk young. What about the ageability of Georgian wines? Probably one of the saddest things about this tradition is that people just don't age wines. So the obviously the larger producers have their reserve ranges and they do age wines. And now fortunately, um, there are some smaller producers also aging wines. But one of the biggest problems has always been that it's not just about whether the tradition is that they drink it, but it's whether they can afford to age the wines. If they make 5,000 bottles of wine and they need to sell 5,000 bottles of wine to feed their family that year, uh, then they sell them. They, they don't think about the possibility of if they wait for five years to sell them, they can make a bit more money. They, they genuinely, uh, in the countryside, there is still a lot of subsistence living. Have to remember that this is actually a developing country. We're, we're definitely not at an economic position where everyone can afford to, to hold on to and age wines. Um, we're in a situation where the, the actual basic subsistence income here, surprisingly, is actually just over 100 US dollars a month, which uh, is probably surprising for most being a, a European country to hear that. Uh, I mean, most people aren't living on those wages and anyone who lives in the city lives on significantly more than that. And winemakers obviously make a lot more money than that. Anyone who's selling wine is probably quite well off compared to the rest of the people in their village. Um, but this has influenced the decision of whether to age wines. So when it comes to opportunities to age wine and uh, ones that I have tasted, uh, Cazzatelli and Saparavi do age very well. The reason for this being they're both high tannin and high acids. Uh, amongst other things, of course. Uh, so it does mean that there is good aging potential with these grapes in general, and so they're very versatile. So there are some monasteries, for example, that are aging wines for a long time. They don't have the financial concerns. Uh, there's a monastery just close to Tbilisi where I picked up a bottle of 2007 Cazzatelli just a couple of months ago. So I'm, I'm going to open that soon. That will be probably the oldest Georgian wine I've ever tasted because basically it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I, I'd hardly know anyone who's got anything older than about 2012. Uh, I genuinely haven't seen it. I haven't seen it on sale. I don't know where to get it. I, I can't find these things. Uh, so yeah, I, I've had some great wines from uh, places like Chelty uh, is quite well known. They're sort of a medium, large producer, but they are doing some great aged wines. Uh, and that's someone you might find some of their wines internationally as well. Uh, Mildiani is one of the large companies, one of the really large companies, but they also have some reserve range, which is fantastic. Uh, and they are, they're likely to be exporting stuff. But whether the really good age stuff gets out there, uh, I can't really say. But yeah, most of my experience uh, here has always ended up being drinking wines that are sort of no more than five years old. Uh, and some of those age well, and some of them you open it and go, yeah, <laughs> that should have been drunk three years ago. This has not done very well. So yeah, normally down to hygiene issues in the production process, which of course is prone to more hygiene issues than steel tank or any other sorts of production because cleaning a quivery is an incredibly difficult process. And a lot of winemakers joke here that um, winemaking in Georgia is basically cleaning. <laughs> that's uh, that's 90% of the job is cleaning and 10% is making wine. It's, uh, it's a really hard labor intensive process to scrub these things. They have to climb inside them. It's like two and a half ton quiveries. They climb inside them. Uh, with with various cleaning equipment, and they just scrub and scrub for hours to get them clean enough to make wine. It's uh, fascinating, but also very frustrating for them to have to do this much work to make wine. Well, I'm glad that 
tradition is still being maintained and that they haven't taken uh, easier options, um, maybe with the exception of larger wineries who obviously have uh, more production and more cost. So thank you, Tom. That's been a great overview of Georgia, its history, its wine culture, and um, a good introduction, I think, to the many styles of wine. I think it makes me want to drink Georgian wine more and also eat more Georgian food. Please do. It's, uh, it's fantastic. And please do come and visit Georgia because when you actually come here and taste these things at the winemakers' homes, it, it adds such an extra dimension to, to everything Georgian. You, you just can't get this same picture if you go into a restaurant in, in the US or the UK or whatever. It's, it's just, it's not the same. Please do uh, encourage your listeners to come and visit here. We'd, we'd love to host them and, and help them experience what the true Georgian culture is and the, the amazing hospitality that you can find here. Love the idea of visiting a, a winemaker at their house and having them uh, serve food with their wine. It's, it just sounds a very, um, well, ideal, really way to appreciate not just culture but the food and the wine as well yeah no it's amazing i i still love these i go out to do these myself with new winemakers all the time uh, i visited over 200 wineries in georgia i've sort of started to lose count i think but i need to do another count every single person that i go to meet they have a different story their family has a different story obviously the wines are always different so many different regions to explore so many grapes we didn't talk about today uh, and so many different dishes. Uh, I'm always discovering new food as well. Once you go to someone's home, they're like, well, this is what my grandmother makes. And it's it's different from what you've ever tasted in any restaurant or seen on a menu anywhere. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I do love being here, really. Cool. Eat this tours, uh, eat this food and wine tours. Uh, we we do specialize purely in sort of uh, more premium experiences, like sitting down with the winemaker in small groups. Most of our groups are rarely larger than seven guests, uh, so that we can actually offer that true intimate experience. And and they they treat you very well here. They really do. If you sit down at their table, you can't leave. You will be there for three hours. We have to try and keep to a schedule with these tours, but uh, the, they really don't want you to leave. They'll keep opening more bottles of wine for you. Definitely don't think that you're turning up to a cellar door where they want to serve you a few sips of wine and then kick you out with a few bottles sold as quickly as possible. Here, they'll be opening five or six bottles for your group of seven people and you'll be wondering how you can actually get back to the van so without uh, refusing more wine. So yeah, that sort of thing. And also, as I said, we, we just sort of pioneered this uh, this tasting menu, this first tasting menu in Karketi region with a wine pairing of six courses of uh, modern uh, twists on Georgian food paired with six different wines from around Georgia, but served up in this lovely winery in Karketi. So as far as I know, it's the first proper regular tasting menu that you can book in Karketi. There's a few in Tbilisi, but it's the first Karketi one that you can book. We, we have that running four times a week. People are interested. So yeah, eatthistours.com if you want to come and find out more about food and wine. And where is your company based? If someone's visiting, do they have to go to the capital city or? We're in Tbilisi. Actually, this is a really, thanks for bringing that up because this is something that people don't understand with Georgia. It's not a very developed market. So unlike other countries where you go to the wine country, you get a hotel, then you find your tour. All the tours leave from Tbilisi, not just my company, everyone's tours leave from Tbilisi. Uh, we can do pickups in Tel Aviv, which is one of the other main cities right in wine country. That's pretty much the only other place where it's convenient to pick people up. Uh, so yeah, do do check out the tour options before you book a hotel somewhere so that you, you make sure you can. I guess Tbilisi is the is the main capital and that's where a lot of the flights come. And then Kutaisi is in Western Georgia, which is where the rest of the flights come. Uh, so yeah, both of those places are, are good for starting tourism from. But Tbilisi is sort of like the epicenter because Karketi is also the biggest wine region by far. So everybody wants to visit there. 
So that's where everyone, pretty much everyone does tours with us. I love doing tours to other regions, but almost everybody who wants to come here for the first time, of course, wants to go straight to Karkedi, which makes sense. And so your tours are adaptable, though, according to the, the guest's needs or requests? Yeah, uh, I mean, we can offer custom tours and we can adjust things. So if you are already in wine country, we can do it. Uh, but honestly, our, our best itineraries are already sort of tried and tested for three and a half years now since we started. We've refined everything we needed to refine. And now, as far as I am concerned, I'm super happy with the way they are. Guests are super happy. We've, you know, we've pretty much only ever had five star reviews. We're, we've really sort of nailed it down to, the, to a couple of perfect experiences with our two one day tours. And also our two-day tour if you want to get a bit more depth and see a bit more of Karketi. Uh, but yeah, we can do custom stuff as well. Uh, it's it's totally possible. But the, the main tours that we sell are, are the ones that people just rave about. So I highly recommend looking at those ones. Yeah, and those tours are listed on the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just head to the homepage, eatthistours.com, and uh, you'll find links to them pretty easily. I actually have one more question. When is the best time to visit Georgia, do you think, in terms of weather and tourist facilities being open? best time for me personally i think is is may through june because all of the new wine festivals happen from the start of may through to about mid-june you have a huge opportunity to try wines in tbilisi if you don't want to travel around all of the country to find regional wines which of course is a, a lot of work for a first-time visitor then you can actually go to these wine festivals and taste a massively diverse range of wines and a lot of the wine festivals are very affordable or even free to enter so you're probably talking about ten dollars uh, and you're going to get to try sort of 40 or 50 wines over the day for, for $10 or something for entry. Uh, so that's a fantastic time to be here. And September, October during harvest season is also incredible time to be here. We run real family uh, wine harvest tours where you can actually join one of these small winemakers, help them pick the grapes and then watch them make the wine and put it in the quevery. Uh, so you, you're actually a part of the real process that this is not like an artificial version for tourists. Uh, we, we're probably going to run about 15 of those this year. They're, they're very limited just purely because you know, they're actually making wine. They only do it one or two days a year, uh, coordinating all this. And with the weather and everything, it's quite hard to actually make it happen. Uh, but we're really excited to do them because they are probably the most exciting tours that we have. Uh, genuinely getting to help the winemakers rather than seeing like a, a, a copycat version of it for, for tourists. It's, it's, a, it's the real thing. And then you have a super afterwards. So you get the best, best of Georgian hospitality as well as getting to help them make wine. Well, thanks. Thanks, Matthew. I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, and I hope your listeners have learned something exciting about Georgia and, and I hope I've been able to convey just how exciting it is uh, as a wine area. So undiscovered. So I think that's one of the, the best reasons to be here.